Good afternoon. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Another episode of the LSAT Life podcast in conversation with LSAT study group tutors, Jake Feldman and Keith Seska. Jake is, of course, in New York and Keith is in Texas. And today we're going to have a somewhat different kind of discussion. I mentioned that Jake and Keith are LSAT tutors. They're well known in the group. But imagine a dystopian future characterized by two things. First is, not only do law school applicants have to take the LSAT, but in fact, every adult American is required to take the LSAT. Number one. Sweet. (laughs) But number two, before the tutors get excited, LSAT tutors have been abolished by law. Any individual who holds himself or herself out as an LSAT tutor will be quickly arrested, thrown in a dungeon, possibly executed. Furthermore, all LSAT books, past, present, and future, have been burned. The LSAT is, of course, the most important rite of passage in life. Basically, one's LSAT score will determine what happens to them from that point on for every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every year, for the rest of your life. Street sweeper. (laughs) All one is given is the information from LSAT, the official LSAT sample test, to try to figure it out. And today's topic conversation is going to focus on what can be learned just from the sample test, what would be the advice, and this could be the final advice that one will hear from an LSAT teacher before they're all (laughs) rounded up, locked up, and possibly executed. So download this podcast, make copies of it, because it may become the final bit of LSAT teaching and discussion in world history. Well, with that introduction, welcome, Jake. How are you today? Doing well, thanks, John. <laughs> so worried far, about, so good? Worried, yeah, worried about my future, perhaps, but, uh, but Keith, fine. Keith, are you also worried about your future? No, I'm a law professor. I'm good. Ah, there you <laughs> You're going to transition over. Okay. All right. So the reason why I think this is an interesting topic is because, you know, when people begin LSAT preparation, they often seek out tutors' books. What they don't do, it seems to me, is pay enough attention to the information given from LSAT about the test itself. That's just my impression. Your thoughts on that? I agree. I've built a whole study method around that exact principle that you need to get more into the test and less into the books and tutors. And I was worried that I'd talk myself out of a job with that study method, honestly. Have you talked yourself out of a job? With the, with the students who embrace it and, and trust me, yeah, they don't need as much tutoring from me as the ones who, who re- resist the, the study method that we've developed. Why would anybody resist the concept of let's look to LSAT first? 
before going to a tutor or a third-party book. Well, I mean, I agree with you. They do resist that. Jake, your thoughts on that? I, I think this is a, a learning culture issue. We spend a lot of time with our younger kids, our younger students, um, scaffolding and uh, framing their learning. And teachers are there spoon-feeding things, giving them um, metacognitive help and legs up over the course of their, their childhoods and their, and their young student life. And by the time a student gets to middle school, that's the time they're supposed to transition into handling their own executive functioning, learning how to learn, learning how to examine their own work. Um, but we don't insist on it. Instead, we've made a transition in this, certainly in the United States and, and to a certain degree in Canada as well, though I think you guys are less susceptible, um, to pushing curriculum on these kids, getting them ahead, getting them advanced, because we think that the way to make great students is to feed them more information. But what we've done by doing that is we've crippled their ability to drive their own learning and to think critically about their own learning. So they get to 18, 19 years old, we send them off to college, they don't know how to learn. And so because they don't know how to learn, when you give them LSAT work, and you say to them, okay, your job is to take this work, go home, do it, analyze it, analyze your own thinking, and then come back at me with questions, they don't even know where to start. So I think the resistance is, doesn't have to do with the idea that we're going to focus on something different, is that it's also uh, critical that they are self-reliant in terms of looking at their own work, and they don't know how to do that. That scares them. They want somebody to tell them how to think and what to think. It's hard. That's the bottom really line. It's, it's harder to do the self-analysis and the, the critical work of learning than it is to just memorize things that someone else tells you are necessary to learn. Yeah. And it's personal, right? It's very revealing of yourself to think about the way that you're thinking. You don't want it to be personal. You want it to be extrinsic. You want, it, you want to blame other people or other things or methods for your lack of performance. But if you have to look internally, you can, you can certainly turn that into a um, sort of yeah, a fixed criticism. mindset. I'm, yeah, a, a self-criticism. I'm not smart enough, right? I must not be smart enough because I can't figure this out. When in truth, it's very much a, a, a growth-minded uh, perspective. But it just doesn't feel that way for people that are very fixed and think they have fixed abilities. It can get really scary really quickly. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the one of the themes that I see constantly when I look at the discussion in the group is this sort of focus on what is the way to do this or, mm -hmm. you know, somebody show me exactly how. And I wonder if a great exercise for somebody might be imagine a dystopian future where there are no LSAT teachers, there are no LSAT books, and it's your job to sort of in a subversive way create your own model of how somebody should prep for the LSAT. That's triple review. I mean, we yeah. specifically say that we don't want anyone to touch any resources until at least the third step of the process. And even then, that's only for the hardest things that they couldn't figure out on their own. So we're, we're totally with getting rid of the, the teacher to the greatest extent possible. Yeah. I also fear that having a highly scaffolded learning environment for the LSAT 
set students up for failure in law school where you don't have that same kind of scaffolded learning approach. It's case law method where you learn one case at a time. And what you're talking about, learning the LSAT through the questions, I think that teaches you the case law method. Essentially, I view every single question like an appellate case where there's a set of facts, there's a question that's posed to the court of LSAC. You can analyze the question on your own, but ultimately they get to be the judge of what's the correct answer to the question. And your job at the end of the day is to figure out what are the rules of logic that animate that decision? What are the rules of logic that make that one correct and the rest wrong? And until you've grasped those rules of logic, you haven't figured out the law yet. If it's a case law scenario and same thing applies to the LSAT. If you can't figure out the rules that animate the test, you haven't figured out the logic yet. Okay, so sort of in a very, very simple-minded way, um, what I think is happening is that people are wanting to do something without even having the vaguest idea of what they're being asked to do. Would, would you agree with me on that, sort of in that, if I put it in that simple-minded kind of way? Absolutely. Yes. Okay, so the first... The first principle, as absolutely idiotic as this sounds, okay, would be that you got to understand what you're being asked to do, right? Yeah. Okay. What advice would you give somebody in the context of LSAT to help with that very basic principle? How do you understand what you're being asked to do? Read the directions. Start there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now you laugh, but I think that's actually an extremely important point because my experience was that a lot of people never did read the directions. Do, would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, it's absolutely absurd. I mean, I remember all those years of teaching. I would actually, I would actually read the directions to the section. Yeah. It was never unhelpful. But at least they could never say that nobody tried to get them to focus on the directions. What if we were to, for example, let's imagine we don't even know anything about LSAT. Let's read the directions here to logical reasoning. I'm looking at an old test. I think these are still the directions, but if they're not, you'll let me know. They haven't changed. Okay. I, I so read here them we frequently. Go. All right. So the questions in this section are based on the reasoning contained in brief statements or passages. Okay, that's interesting. They're calling them statements or passages. A statement or passage might include an argument, but that doesn't necessarily mean it is an argument. Agreed? Correct. Right. So the first message, it seems to me, is that all you're going to get, buddy, is a bunch of text, and part of your job is to figure out what kind of text it is. Agreed? Yep. Okay. For some questions, more than one of the choices can conceivably answer the question. I love that part. That's a very difficult statement, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm so looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that statement. Um, so 
there are a lot of people out there that would say there is one right answer, there are four wrong answers, and they're wrong for a reason. I would even go so far as to say that's probably the pragmatic approach to answering questions in LR, but that doesn't mean that out of context were you to provide one of the five alone without the other four there, conceivably it could it could be deemed deductively correct in a certain way outside of the context of the question. Okay. Even if it's not the right answer. I think you can have more than one right answer and we have to have a principle for, for discerning the matter of degree, particularly okay. on strengthened and weakened questions. Yeah. All right. Now let, let's just on that thought, Keith, let's move over to the end of the directions because what they say at the end is after you've chosen the best answer, Right. So, you know, that seems to me to be directly correlated to uh, more than one of the choice could answer the question. Does that make sense? Yeah. OK, now I'm going to tell you how I experienced groups uh, trying to deal with this. And I think a lot of this has to do with sort of self-talk. If somebody's orientation is I'm looking for completely wrong, completely right. I don't know how good that is. Isn't to think in terms of better versus worse, more effective than right versus wrong? Yeah, that's how that's how we treat answer choices. We always tell them don't don't circle the one that you think is right on it on the first pass. Put squiggles next to think things that you want to keep around and cross out things that you know were affirmatively wrong. And you should never be crossing out all five things and likely you should be squiggling two or three things. All right. So you agree that better versus worse is preferable to right versus wrong in terms of how people think about at least the LR, right? Yep. You, you too, Keith? Yes. Okay. So, you know, I got to tell you, okay, the way I experienced this stuff from a classroom perspective was that when people got it down to two choices, those who were thinking right versus wrong always had more trouble than those who th thought in terms of better versus worse. Okay, here we go. However, continuing on, you were to choose the best answer. They even have the word best underlined. Now, here we go again. The response that most accurately and completely answers the question. Why don't we break that down? Accurately and complete. Accuracy and completeness. What does that mean to you? You know, it, it can mean a lot of things, but from, from a deductive framework, it means you have to understand what would be valid and to be accurate and complete about the way that you're answering the question, you need to do so in a way in which there are no uncertainties of language, no, va no vagueness about the language that's there, or nothing can be right except for this one word which I don't love, right? An incompletely correct answer would be like, 98% of this is fine, I don't love this part, but the rest of it's good. Okay, or for example, Let's imagine um, 
a must follow from type of question. Mm-hmm. And let's imagine that, you know, if you were to run, whatever it was, you would run through your reasoning, you could definitely conclude, say, A, B, and C. Okay. A, B, and C. Each of A, B, and C independently must follow from. What if you have an answer choice that includes only A and B? Correct or incorrect? Depends on how they phrase the answer. Uh, sorry, how they phrase the question stem. And right. depends on what other answers there might be. Right. And, and I think ultimately, I mean, you know, in, in reading all of this, what do, what do I think LSAC's purpose was in putting these directions there and phrasing them like that? Do I think they intend to have more than one answer be correct? No. I think they intend for there to be one correct answer and four wrong. Let's pause on that. I want to get Keith's thought on that. Yeah, sure. What do you think LSAT intends, Keith? More than one right answer or one right answer and a cleverly disguised wrong answer, for example? Um, you know, I'm not so sure those are different things. The best way to disguise a wrong answer is to make it partially correct. And so I, I don't consider that to be just a, a an on-off distinction. I think we have gradations of good and the line gets drawn in different places. So you always want the best answer and sometimes it's really good. And there's another good answer and this one's just better by comparison. But then I find there's other questions where there's only one plausible answer and it's not that great. And so it might even fall below the standard of a wrong answer to another question. It really is comparative and specific to the individual question. So I, I do think that there are questions where you could remove the correct answer and there would be another correct answer. And I think there are other questions where the correct answer is so obscure that it is frequently a wrong answer because there's something better. I think it goes both ways. Yeah. Okay, that, you know, that's a very interesting description, which I think absolutely supports the last sentence in the directions, which is after you've chosen, which includes after you've chosen the best answer, right? Yeah. You know, that kind of means that, as Keith suggests, that best clearly depends on the other choices, right? Yeah, the best out of the five. And it depends on the context. Yeah. All right. Now, some people might find that discussion interesting, others not. But what does it mean practically in terms of advice you give to somebody grappling with LSAT preparation? For me, it means the formulaic gimmicks aren't going to work. If you say, when you see this, the answer will look like that. The, you know, the, whether that's true or not is a matter of degree. It will often look like that. But there are ways to craft a correct answer that's even better than that. And there's ways to craft a correct answer that's somewhat worse. And so that's what I think is the biggest danger that students are looking for a lot of predictability in an exam that thrives on being unpredictable. Yeah. And I think this is this is a bit about my point about that wording is that ultimately LSAT is equivocating. And I don't mean that in a bad way. They recognize that that there are some subjectivities to what's going on here in terms of the precision of the language. 
um, you know, what certain words mean in certain contexts to certain people. And so they need to build in a little bit of wiggle room for themselves in terms of how correct their answers are because the test is supposed to be standardized. But because it can't be standardized the way a math test can be, you know, games can be to a, to a large degree, save for a couple of, you know, choice words here or there. Um, but once you decide on the rules for those words, they don't go too far outside that. But in LR and RC, there's subjectivity to this language and the ways that they're asking you to deduce things. And so because of that, they need to give themselves room so that people say, you know, hey, this question, the, the answer to this question isn't, isn't as good as I want it to be because that's not what this word means in, in, in this context. They say, look, it's the best answer among the choices. They need, they need that room. Okay, and they need, it seems to me, to protect themselves from the accusation that it somehow becomes a vocabulary test. Correct. Because I don't, you know, I haven't thought about this, but I do not recall seeing, ever seeing any questions of logical reasoning that were dependent on vocabulary. Yeah, every once in a while, there's a word built into an RC, a reading comp question that you, you kind of have to know what it means. We came across one last night. It was a question that used the, uh, the, used the word circumscribed in the right answer. If you don't know the word circumscribed, you're going to have a really hard time recognizing that as the right answer. Would hard. you, uh, would that though be in the context of one where, assuming you, you didn't know the word and had trouble recognizing it as a right answer independently of the other answers though, were the other answers, you know, just so clearly worse? Yes. There was nothing I mean, else correct. There was definitely nothing else correct. You know, so would people default into that as an answer, even without knowing the word. Yeah, but you, but that's not a good way to create. It. If if the if the question is not intended to test your ability at vocabulary, psychometrically, that's not a good way to construct a question. You don't want people answering it by tr process of elimination. You want there to be an affirmative path toward the right answer. Yeah. So I don't love that it requires knowing what circumscribed means, unless you want that to be part of your metric. Sure. Okay, so we have five answer choices. We're specifically given the directive that we are to choose the best answer choice. We're also, the final part of the directions that we haven't talked about is the sentence that says you should not make assumptions that are by common sense standards, implausible, superfluous, or incompatible with the passage. Huh. What's that supposed to mean? There's where I think we get a lot of traction with my case law analysis. How do we know what assumptions are, are obvious and which ones are superfluous? You have to look at 100 or 200 or 1,000 questions and see what assumptions they build into the correct answers and which ones are not fair. They constitute flaws, you know, correct answers to flaw questions. There's where you learn the level of departure that they have to make to consider it a flaw in their rule system. So, so in other words, if I'm understanding you, you could use the flaw questions on the test as a way to identify examples of what else they would consider to be bad reasoning and therefore could not be assumptions. That's what right. you're saying? Yeah, yeah, that's really one of the few standards we have. Yeah. Probably the only standard, the LSAT universe, LSAT logic. 
you know, we could also look at the questions where they have uh, must be true or most strongly supported and say, well, those are fair conclusions or the assumptions built into drawing those conclusions are common enough sense that they're supported anyway. So we could look at it from both angles. We could look at the flaw questions to see what not to do. And we could look at the must be true and most strongly supported questions to see how far we can go in deviating from the original language or the original logic. So that's really interesting. You know, so it was John Irving who wrote the book, The World According to Garp. I'm not familiar with it. Well, so imagine that one were to go through all these tests and write the world according to LSAT, you know, the assumptions through which LSAT sort of bases, the, you know, bases its test in the world. I mean, I think that would be interesting. Well, it's sort of a macro example of what we're talking about with the micro example of LR questions, right? What are the rules that govern this world? What are the principles? LSAC has clearly decided what they are, but we have to derive them. And and when you talk about this dystopia that we're living in right now with no tutors and no prep materials, this is part of the reason why I hesitate to define these things for my students. Because if I'm defining it, I'm defining it through my lens, through my eye, with my paradigm and my understanding. And if I express that to you in words, it gets lost in translation twice. Once when I verbalize it, and again when you interpret my verbalization. You're not going to understand those, those principles the way that I do. So how could I possibly express the entirety of them to you? You have to derive those rules on your own. The one, the one exception I make here is that I do tell people, in general, the assumptions you're allowed to make are ones of what words mean, rather than new ideas about connecting terms that are not connected. You're allowed to find synonyms. You're allowed to find things that are equivalent but you're not allowed to then extend that beyond the definition of the word itself. And you're allowed to make sort of logical deductions about numerics. You know, if you're given statistics about the majority view, you can make the appropriate assumption or, or conclusion about the minority view. But, uh, but the kinds of, of allowed assumptions are pretty narrow, I find. They're pretty particular with calling out connections that don't exist or or demanding that you call them out if you're not going to have not going to have a flawed argument so so when we look at these you know, the, you know these things i mean if i were giving somebody some homework and say here's what i want you to, do to get yourself in the lsat mindset so to speak uh let's have a look we have a question i uh, sorry we have we have a statement which may be an argument or may not. We're being at, we have a question where we're asked to do something about the information, about the statement, right? And then we're somehow supposed to pick which of the five choices uh, best responds to what you're being asked to do about it, right? And if we look at the, the assumptions, the construction, the worldview of LSAP, seems to me that there are some principles on each, you know, clearly with respect to each of those components that seem to me to repeat themselves. And if we were to start a discussion, for example, about answer choices, let me make a statement and I'd be interested in your thoughts on it. First of all, I think we can all agree that LSAT cannot have a test 
where everybody can get the answer right, correct? You know, it has right. to be designed so that, you know, statistically only a certain number of people get it right. Also, I think LSAT's a business, basically. They may be a nonprofit, but they're a business. And I think they clearly want to stay in business. There's no doubt about that. So doesn't their business model kind of depend on the average person actually being able to understand and get most of the answers correct if, if they had enough time? I'm not sure that would give us a normal curve. I mean, I think there needs there need to be... Uh, but isn't it the about... time that creates the or the lack of time that creates the score distribution more than the difficulty of the questions? Not everybody can finish the marathon, even given 10 hours. We have Some our students do them untimed and they don't get them all right. There mm -hmm. are con there, there are conceptual limits to people's scores in addition to time limits. I could I could let you I could let you play a Beethoven sonata at a tenth speed. It doesn't mean you can play all the right notes, even then. Okay. There's some skill. There's some skill involved. Yeah, okay. In yeah. There's definitely yeah. So there's definitely some skill, but for sure, um, we'd all agree that the test has to be designed so not everybody can get it right, regardless of how much time right. people have. Right. Okay. Right. Now, if we look at answer choices. Would you agree that part of the rule of design of construction for answer choices is to attract people to answer choices that are wrong? I think I think to a certain degree. I mean, it depends on the writer, but I, I you know, I've I've written five choice, multiple choice questions, and that's part of the that's part of the deal. You have the right answer, and then you figure out attractive or likely wrong answers, wrong reasoning that people can make and how they would end up at a, a different answer choice. Okay. I wonder, you know, it'd be interesting if we could generalize in some of the general, sort of, sort of the basic approaches that they seem to use to attract people to uh, wrong answers. Um, now, let me begin by suggesting that the ordering of answer choices is a factor and attracting people to wrong answers. Agree, sure. disagree, thoughts on that? I definitely agree. Yeah, I, I do, though, I, though I, I worry about hinting at anybody trying to derive rules about where in the list of answer choices things are more likely to be than other things. Oh, I, I certainly agree with you on that. You know, in other words, I'm not sure. I think, you know, an awareness of this is one thing. Right. Uh, you know, perhaps in a very minimalistic sense, uh, the fact that you see it quickly doesn't make it right, perhaps. Right. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I also agree that, you know, this sort of discussion about statistically there's more D's than A's or, you know, is really, I, in my view, anyway, a complete waste of time. Yeah. But I have seen, or at least I think I've seen, a lot of instances where, for example, with choice B, it's a strong wrong answer distractor as a way of sort of obscuring C as the right answer, which comes right after it. Sort of a sort of an attention diverter, right? You know, whether it's intentional or not, it's playing into our confirmation to bias. And so those are harder to spot or avoid even if they're unintentionally placed that way i would agree with you that in terms of like importance to the test taker 
that scenario presents a more formidable obstacle than the reverse, where you are already understand the correct answer and then see the attractor. That's easier to figure out than the reverse scenario. Yeah, I, I think yeah, absolutely. Um, what about these answer choices? So then the question becomes, you know, I mean, what are the things they seem to do, you know, very repetitively, and therefore I would have to think intentionally, you know, to make wrong answer choices attractive. And um, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Just some basic general principles that you could identify. Num number one is that they use the vocabulary from the stimulus or passage, but they Whoa. use it incorrectly. Right, quoting the exact words, but yeah. connecting them in wrong ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would agree with you like a thousand percent on that. In fact, I used to have a phrase for that called "same language, wrong answer." Yeah, yeah. So, so no question, no question on that at all. No. Question. Then they'll have true but not correct statements. Yeah, absolutely, a true yeah. statement but not responsive to the question. Yeah. Right. Now let's pause on that for a minute because, you know, an awful lot of people, by the time they get to the answer choices, I honestly think I've forgotten what the question was. Yeah. Am for I sure? Do you agree? Yeah. Frequently. Do you think it might be good advice to people to, you know, something is brainless as uh hey reread the question before going to the answer choices yeah. three times three times Re oh yeah you like that one okay three read times first do the stimulus read it again look at the answer choices and then once you've decided read it again to confirm yeah like i i, I gotta tell you i think that is so key because if you miss that you become extremely susceptible to true statement but not responsive type of thing you know there's there's clearly so much of that going on, so much of that going on in the test, right? Yep. Okay. Another thought on, you know, these sort of repetitive things they seem to do. Um, they, they'll play on algorithmic approaches. So, yeah. for instance, they know that the prep world is out there telling people it is critical to know the difference between necessary and sufficient. Oh, so yeah. Then they'll give oh, you yeah. answer choices that play on the fact that you know that that's a thing, even though it has nothing to do with what's going on in the question. Exactly. Right. Oh, my God. I recognize that as a principle of LSAT construction. It must be right. Yeah. Yeah. No question about that. There's a lot of that. Good. I, I you know, I, you know, it's just taste for me. There's a trip down memory lane. <laughs> other other thoughts on, you know, on things they, they would do. They play on the order of the concepts in the parallel reasoning questions where the right answers usually got the, the same logic, but presented in a different order. And then the wrong answers will mirror the order of the original presentation. And there's two ways they get you on those. The order is irrelevant to the logic, but it's hard to ignore it. They also, I think, will, will create trap answers on parallel reasoning questions that mimic the the content or substance of the original argument when the logic is actually different. So I, I tend to be skeptical of answers that have the same substance or answers that are presented in the same order. I'm extra suspicious of those. Yeah, I, you know, I absolutely. <laughs> those, uh, in fact, I, I used to, uh, 
you know, it's funny. I've always hated categorizing questions, but I always loved categorizing wrong answer choice types. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, rubber meets the road, really. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I used to say exactly that, Keith. Wrong answer because of form or wrong answer because of substance. But, yeah. you know, the parallel reasoning. But to get there, you actually have to understand the flow of the argument. And it seems to me that a lot of people really don't have time to do that. No, it's one of the skills that, that we, you know, it's one of the skills I insist on is, what, you know, it's paraphrasing. It's zooming out. See the skeleton, right? Not the flesh, not the muscles. You got to see the skeleton of the thing. Can you generalize it down to lots of A's or B, all B's or C's, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Or here, let me offer one up. Get your thoughts on it. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, what I would call a uh, word shift right at the end that, that changes the meaning, right? This is so good. Yes. And it's so good that you decided that you want it to be right. You love it so much so that you can't see the word shift at the end, right? Along those lines, I think one of the ways they do it is what I call the superfluous adjective or adverb, right? That extra little bit that makes it wrong. Everything was right except for the fact that they said most or they used the wrong descriptor, right? It was the 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 ocean fish instead of the freshwater fish, right? Like just that extra little description that made the thing wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 100% right on that. And... You know, so, you know, I mean, obviously they have figured out that they can run that type of sentence by people and they don't see the distinction, right? Mm -hmm. So why, I mean, what, what's the advice you give people? Read every word of every choice? No, that's too much. That's too general. That doesn't give them anything. I, I, honestly, what I tell them is stop reading other people's advice. You have to, there, there have got to be multiple layers of analysis. You have to be able to give it a shot and use your, you know, use your intuition. And then you have to do it untimed and take as much time as you need to get right answers. And then you have to do your meta-analysis. What, what's the right answer now? Now that I know what the right answer is, why is it the right answer? Why are these wrong answers? What was wrong with them? How can I fix them? You have to do all of those pieces on every question you do because that's the way that you develop your own curriculum. And, we, and, and, it all, and it all has to be done in relation to the specific question asked. Yeah. We developed a two-pass method for the answer choices that kind of accounts for this. And the first pass involves leaving any plausible answer. And so if any part of it's good and attractive to you, you just leave it in and leave the subtleties for later. And then it's once you're left with a few contenders then drill down and get more discerning with the details of the answer choice. I like that method because I think if you try to brute force every single answer choice, you end up having to go back to the stimulus very often to double check all of the details. But if you get, can get rid of the ones that aren't contenders, like even if the details match up, that's not going to possibly be right. Then you have more bandwidth to go back and take the final two or three answers and say, now I have to, consider all the details and all of the connections or disconnections with the original. Yeah. With, with, with less to filter it. So, you know, right. just, could it, would it be a correct summary of that piece of advice? Uh, let's get rid of the crap and then deal with the contenders. 
Yeah, and if yeah, dealing with the contenders, make sure you right. go reread the question. But and, gonna... and read every word of the contender. That's when you get to that level of granularity. Okay. Yeah, you know, I think that I, you know, I happen to think that's very good advice. Uh, I think that's very, very good advice. But you need to know what the contenders are, right? You need to know how to figure out what are contenders and what aren't. Okay. And, think, and your you know, thoughts on that. So when you talk about this dystopia, right, what I think is so powerful about this is that so often what we end up doing is trying to undo the damage that very good curricula do on students who don't know how to parse that curricula, who don't understand how to apply it. And so they're, they've got all these ideas in their head, but they don't know when to use them and how. And so, so for me, right, when you're thinking about how am I going to figure out what the contender for an answer is, you need a task not 15 tasks or 30 tasks and you have to figure out which one to draw draw from i need a task and i need to anticipate what the answer is accurately explicitly and concisely if i can't know what i'm looking for how on earth am i going to be able to get rid of the contenders so uh, sorry i get rid of the crap and leave myself with the contenders so ultimately what do they do they go to all five answer choices and try to shove them in and see if they work then you have you ever heard a student say to you Oh my God, they all seem pretty much the same to me. All the time. Sure. Well, what's your response to that? Go back to the stimulus. <laughs> They're all very different. Finding those differences is key to distinguishing them and determining which ones are contenders has to do with a strong prediction up front. I usually can beat my students through the answer choices because I'll just see that some of them don't discuss the right concepts to be relevant to the flaw and the students are stuck on those trying to do this deep interpretation of precisely what it means and precisely how it fits and I'm, I'm thinking the whole time who cares even if I figure all that out the end result is going to be it's irrelevant <laughs> yeah they keep asking themselves could this be the flaw maybe this is the flaw no 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 you the know flaw the flaw you need to take ownership of what the flaw is yeah yeah, yeah. Um, or flaws. Sometimes there are multiple yeah, mm -hmm, flaws. Yeah. Uh, it's, see, my, my impression of this, I mean, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this in my life. We all seem the same. Well, it means one of two things. You either have no idea what the question is asking you to do, which is usually the case, or perhaps a, a deeper level. You know, when you read the stimulus, you ran the words through your head one at a time and had no idea what you just read. You know, it's it's yeah. one of the, it's one of those two things. But uh, you know, I like I think that's you know as simple of a point as that is. I think it's an extremely important point because there's a lot of people who, you know, that is how they experience the LSAT, right? Yeah. I think um, one of the tragedies is that the the advice and the shortcuts that are being offered on the market are actually pretty good. But because the students don't have the right framework to know when to employ those strategies, they don't know when the shortcut is going to work, then it ends up being this huge weight on their souls that they, they think they just have to keep learning more it's and like more It's like a cancerous tumor that gets bigger every practice test they right. do is what it is. Right. And it's not just but, when, it's, it's also why. Right. Right. If they don't know why it works, then they're going to be stuck when it ever deviates even slightly from the standard form. OK. So another thought I. Yeah. 
so let me tell you what I'm thinking as I listen to the two of you uh, discuss this. There is a world of difference between, as experienced tutors, I think you would probably agree with this. There's a world of difference between explaining to somebody why an answer is right and equipping them with the tools to get there themselves. Agreed? Definitely. Okay. So we talk about this whole vocabulary issue, which is a huge part of LSAT prep culture. You know, I see this in the group sometimes, you know, people say, well, you know, uh, what is, you know, they, they want to focus on the, the, you know, these precise quanti quantifiers or, you know, or something like that. So isn't the question not find the quantifiers or find the restrictive language, isn't the question, yeah, you need to be aware of it, but the question is, what does the language mean in the context of what you're being asked to do? Which, you know, seems to me to be an entirely different, different kind of mindset. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're trying to offload the responsibility of the analysis of the stimulus to the method that they were given. That's what they want. They want somebody to give them a complete, a comprehensive method that they can memorize and apply as an algorithm in its entirety. That's exactly that. what they want. You can't do that. There's just too much. Why don't they believe that? Why don't they believe that? Because everywhere else in the, so this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. Everywhere else in their life, they have been told, this is how you get the right answer, because I'm going through it like this in class. So and it here's works. an example question. Here's how you do it. Here's how you get the answer. Now do it again, except with these new numbers. I don't think they believe me that the LSAT writers are as clever as they are. They don't think that they're going to be able to come up with something new to trick them. <laughs> they just don't believe it yeah. until they take the LSAT a couple of times and realize it's never the same. <laughs> never. <Yeah. laughs> if, if they had learned math, if they had learned math not by memorizing algorithms, but by understanding how everything conceptually boiled down to 1 plus 1 equals 2, right? And that everything was based on that, and they understood the conceptual underpinnings of mathematics rather than just went through math class, then they would be more open to the idea that logic games can be learned that way. And then they would be more open to the idea that LR is just logic games with words. Right. But but they're not they're not open to that. Instead, they're told, no, I've always learned from reading a book, memorizing the stuff that was on the page and then regurgitating it. And I got my A. So why can't I do that here? I think that's part of the trap is that that method works so well in so many other contexts that it's really hard for me to convince people that's not going to work here and that's not going to work in law school. And they keep saying, but I have a 4.0, but I got so such and such on the SAT, but I've never failed a class in my life. They have all these justifications for why their learning method works. And I usually don't try to convince them at that point. I tell them, go try it and call me in six months when you don't have your score. And then we'll, then you'll be willing to believe me that the test writers are clever. It's a skill-based test and that those traditional ways of learning don't work as well in this context as they do in others. Because there isn't an encyclopedia of things to learn here. There's one concept to learn, and that's deductive reasoning. And that's and a really as, simple concept. You know, as soon as they came up with one, if you could call the Bibles an encyclopedia of the exam, as soon as they're published, they've got questions that are defeated you know, or they've got questions that thwart those those strategies. 
the hardest questions, perhaps the ones that students kind of can afford to ignore in many cases, but they exist nonetheless. There are questions right now today that are not amenable to any method in the PowerScore Bible or are, are beaten by many of the methods in the PowerScore Bibles. For example, the ones with two correct answers. How, the PowerScore Bible offers no solution for a question where you find two different answers that both strengthen the conclusion and that's what you're asked to do. No solution to that problem whatsoever. Not even an attempted solution. Don't they at least tell them to pick the right answer? They do, but they tell them that they're wrong. They say, yeah, well, that the other one's think, wrong. Yeah, if you think that two answers strengthen the strengthen the conclusion, then you're wrong about one of them. Let me ask you this question. Do you think the world of LSAT prep would be better without books? I think there are parts of these books that are that are good, that are useful. I think I think a fundamental education about the vocabulary of the test, what's on it, how is it constructed, what are the expectations, I think that can be valuable. I think that can be an efficiency <clears throat> for people. I think that's valuable. I you think know, the world of LSAT prep would be better off with no answer explanations. You know, better from whose perspective? I think the test writers and the schools would be able to garner better data if people were not hacking the test with tutors, teachers, and books. But if your acceptances, your admissions and your scholarships depend on your score and you can inflate it, whether that inflation is arbitrary or not, then it really is not in your advantage to ignore those sources. So I think that everybody's in a real catch-22 here. The students have a major incentive to try to beat the test, and that's always going to corrupt the measure because they're out there <clears throat> learning these artificial ways to beat it. I have a lot of sympathy for the test taker. If I were taking the test, I would use all the gimmicks too. But I don't want my students to do that because I think ultimately that doesn't, it doesn't look far enough into the future. That doesn't help them in law school. That well, doesn't that, leaving it. aside law school, doesn't it cap them at a certain score? I mean, if for no other reason, but that if you're doing what everybody does, you're going to get what everybody gets. I got a really high score with what I consider today to be gimmicks. So if there is a cap, it's pretty high up there. I okay. think you can get into the 170s with those gimmicks. Yeah. In and fact, I don't a lot think people many do. people need more than that. So that's, effect that's effectively done for them. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about the questions themselves. You know, we talked a bit about the answer choices. What advice would you give somebody for how to read questions more effectively? I mean, I think this is a huge problem. Because another kind of wrong answer choice, by the way, is something that would be the right answer to a different question. Right. Yeah, we talk yeah. about that quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. I mean, for, first of all, you know, the the there is a there's a limited list of what the questions are going to ask you, right? In each in each uh, section of the test, there are 10 to 15 question types that are that 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 you know consist 95% of what you'll see. But then the idea is not to keep that running list in your mind. The idea is to see how they all relate to each other. What how do they all filter back up to the core principle? Okay. So, would you agree that in logical reasoning 
every question necessarily in some way or another has to be related to what is being said in the passage and the reason given for it. Yep. You know, as these things are just, you know, different question types are not so much different question types. They're just looking at a different aspect of the relationship uh, between the what and the why in the passage. Does that, does that seem like a reasonable guideline to you? Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. We, we point out frequently how you can have two different answer choices on one question, on a flaw question, that look at it from completely different angles. What you assume to be true when you're making an argument is the exact opposite of what you fail to consider. Those, that's two uh, completely opposite ways of looking at the exact same flaw to the exact same argument. So even within a question, we might be asked to look at it from different angles. That's one we talk about quite a bit, fails to consider. And it falls under your example of it's frequently a true statement, but a wrong answer. You don't have to consider everything for every argument. The only things that are actual flaws are the things you fail to consider that would have weakened your argument had you considered them. So there's an extra step. It's not just, did you fail to consider it? It's also, and would that have mattered if you had considered it? Or does it matter now that we're considering it? And, and similarly, the, you know, the phrasing presumes. We have no idea what the author is presuming except the thing that is the flaw in the reasoning. But the author could be presuming lots of stuff. We don't know one way or the other, but we have a little bit of evidence about the one that he's presuming that, that, that turns out is the flaw in the reasoning. You know, we haven't talked in this podcast about the, the passages, particularly. I think that maybe we should do another podcast on the passages themselves. It's, you know, it's a huge topic. And, uh, you know, it seems to me there's no end of, of aspects of that that we can discuss, you know, particularly the almost universal uh, inclusion of superfluous information in this stuff, right? Um, okay. Any sort of wrap-up thoughts on the answer choices and the questions here? That's the food on which you will thrive when it comes to learning how to teach yourself this test. It is not enough to simply do tests, correct them, see what you got wrong, categorize them, and move on. You can't get better at the skill until you consume every little piece of information that the LSAT is, is providing you. And that means taking those answer choices, taking those question stems, and, and ripping them apart to their, to their tiniest grain, to the, to the smallest possible piece that you can look at and say, what can I learn from this? What can I gain from this? How does this weave into the fabric of my understanding of, of the approach to the test? And then you have to apply it the next time around. You don't stop at just what's the right answer. This is why those explanation videos, which are so attractive, somebody's going to tell me why the right answer is right. No, they're going to tell you why the right answer is right for them, but not for you. And so you need to spend that time. Yeah, I think I think that is absolutely right. But, you know, allow me to reinforce again. I do not perceive with most people the problem is understanding 
the right answer when it's explained to them. I don't think that's the issue. The issue is somehow or other equipping people with a small number of tools that have broad enough application so they don't lose the focus to kind of somehow navigate themselves to the last answer standing. You know, that, that makes sense. Yeah. At least that, that's, you know, that's kind of what I think it is. All right. Well, this has been a very, very interesting discussion and I thank you for it. And we've got all kinds of sort of uh, topics for the future. And I hope the listeners will find this interesting because I really believe that the discussion that we've had today is really important for people prepping for the LSAT. Agreed. I mean, I think that one of the best things they might do is uh, you gave them the assignment, why don't you figure out what a prep course for the LSAT should be? You know, what's it really about? But tell me, to wrap it up, are you looking forward to a dystopian future where LSAT tutors are rounded up, locked up, and basically made illegal. But that's not the part of it I'm looking forward to. But, <laughs> but, but if it, but if if the if the consequence is that people will be empowered to go drive their own learning and realize what what they're capable of in terms of their ability to extract knowledge from the things that they're given, I'm I'm certainly looking forward to that. You know what? Maybe the message, maybe the message should be, hey you got to take responsibility for your own LSAT score. What do you think? Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it because I'm going to go teach my case law analysis. It's not LSAT prep, but it'll still get you a good LSAT score. And and I don't have any of these pesky tutors to compete with, so. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Okay. (laughs) You know, that's sort of a subculture, isn't it? The LSAT tutoring subculture. Now we'll, we'll have another podcast about that one day. We can certainly do that. All the, all yeah, the back channel communications. All right. Oh, this has been very interesting. Well, thank you very much for this. And we'll pick it up with our next podcast. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.